I think Jeremy's thinking of Walter Becker. Oh, yeah, Walter you're right. Oh, well, <laughs> the actual guy out. in Steely Dan. I'm sure the Brecker brothers were on a Steely Dan session at some point. It just seems inevitable. You don't have to save this. I'm cutting it all. <laughs> cutting it all. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. The whole segment. <laughs> <laughs> the whole lineup start over. <laughs> I'm cutting this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Shutting it down. That's a wrap. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, internationally known channel and full-fledged spiritual aspirant. Say that again? I am an internationally known channel and full-fledged spiritual aspirant. You're an aspirant and a channel. I would think you'd have to yeah. be like good at being a channel and then you're not an aspirant anymore. Well, listen, I just want you to remember that the ascension process requires letting go of those things that have kept you in the stifling, restrictive reality of the third and fourth dimensions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so remember that. All right. I don't remember anything as we've discussed offline here. Yeah, we, beforehand we discussed that Jeremy has a bad memory, and we speculated that Sean had gotten high before recording, and uh, all of that is coming into play as we start recording here. Well, I am co-host Jeremy, and during my weekly viewing of Osmosis Jones, I decided, well, it got me thinking about the Magic School Bus. And how they would shrink the bus and go inside the body. And I was thinking we need an amusement park to where people can learn to understand hearing and how our aural system works. And I want to call it Earland. <laughs> I see. You got, you got the. Uh... He's got a vision, a dream, just a boy with a dream. <laughs> waxing poetic <laughs> about osmosis jones as many yeah. often do so you're you're down from a bi-weekly to just a weekly viewing of osmosis jones is everything all right jeremy <laughs> i've been getting a lot of judgment for my bi-weekly viewing so <laughs> okay I, so this is you trying to like move into some sense of uh normalcy yeah friends are like you always use that excuse for why we can't hang out. And I say, you can come to my house and watch it too. And yeah, so we're done. It just doesn't work like it used to. No. Most people can only see it six or seven times before they don't want to see it again. All right. Is it my turn? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I am co-host Peter Cook. And I hate to say that I, I prepared for the... Wrong episode tonight. Oh, I, oh no! I thought I thought I was on my other podcast. I'd buy that video game for a dollar, where we talk about inexpensive, common, 
and underappreciated video games that you can still find pretty cheap in like thrift stores. And I thought we were talking about the Magnavox Odyssey, one of the first home video game consoles. Well, oh. you're just confused in the most adorable way, aren't you? <laughs> Do, <laughs> As per usual. <laughs> Does anyone ever played the Odyssey or the Odyssey 2? I've never even heard of it. I'm guessing no. that was obsolete before I was born. Yes, it was. It was. I think both were obsolete before I was born seven years before you. Wow. Uh, yes. It's well. Probably not cheap anymore then, though. Yeah, I have no idea <laughs> at this point. I, I don't actually have that other podcast, so don't go looking for it. Listener. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm told that we have a special guest in the house, too. I think we heard this guest say a thing or two already. Who is here? Oh, uh, I'm Alec, or a.k.a. Particle Ray, the Sorcerer of Sound. I'm a DJ, producer, and record collector, and, and lucky to know Sean. Because you are also a resident of the great city of Philadelphia, Alec? I think I'm, yeah. yeah I'm pretty sure I'm a resident here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, Alec, you are, I'm told, that you are part of the Vinyl Tap 215 crew that we've featured many members of on previous episodes. Yeah, I've been with them for uh, probably like five, six years at this point. Part of the continued Vinyl Tap 215 takeover of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Yeah, it's been rampant ever since Sean moved to Philadelphia. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> How dare I make new friends in a new city? Well, that automatically qualifies Alec for the podcast. And what did you bring to talk about Charles Airland Odyssey. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either. Yeah, we we were speculating beforehand. We we believe this is the surname is pronounced Ireland, but if you know otherwise, listeners, please get at us at I'd buy that podcast at gmail.com. So we think it's <laughs> Charles Ireland. And I know, you know, for first time listeners, maybe it doesn't bode well that we're not even sure how to pronounce the name of the person we're supposedly going to talk about for the rest of this episode, but we've done our research as best we can. Okay. Just bear with us. It's going to be great. We're going to listen to some songs. Welcome to the podcast. Yes. Please go easy on us. We're just, this is supposed to be fun. (laughs) We, We try to be informative, but ultimately it's supposed to be fun. All right. Well, speaking of fun, let's hear the first song tonight, huh? Yeah, what what you got? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to kick it off with side A, track one, Intergalactic Love Song.
Thank you for your call. Please hold, and we will be with you as soon as possible. <laughs> All of our agents are busy. <laughs> All of our agents are currently busy. <laughs> now, now, that's not a criticism. It, 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 we're listening, for our listeners, Jeremy and I are listening to this album played through the Zencaster that hosts, the that connects us to Sean and Alec in Philadelphia, and hearing it come over the line, hearing Intergalactic Love Song come over the line, it, it had that quality to it. True, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't hear any of the crazy ring modulators that I know are there because I listened to the album before this, but those ring modulators kind of drove me crazy when I was listening to it. Yeah. I was really enjoying the song, but they would just do their weird chirping thing, and it made me feel weird in my ears. There's a lot of effects on this album, it feels like. Yeah, most of them I super dig. Yeah, there's a lot of synthesizer happening. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, to be clear up front, Charles Irland, the front man, the, the, the band leader on this album, is a keyboardist, correct? Yes. Uh, well, most notably a keyboardist, I guess, would be the more accurate way of putting it. Yeah, he was a saxophone guy. Am I cutting yeah, too Yeah, multiple in, saxophones. Too much into the history now? <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much history to go around, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Back to the top. well over here where we have the pristine audio straight from the turntable it uh it gives the impression of maybe like a retro futuristic space movie and that's the music in the lobby kind of thing like it just has this this feel of you know space or at least like people's uh conception of space in the 60s is like the specific image that i get with this what year is this album this is 1976. Okay. This is a bicentennial record. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, this is intergalactic love song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's right there in the title. I would... They follow through with the imagery. Yeah. And then you just get that heavy Ron Carter bass line in there, and it's just suddenly so funky. Yeah. I suspected that was Ron. We've heard him enough now. Oh, that was Ron. Yeah. And then I looked it up uh, while we were listening. Yep, there's Ron, our good old buddy Ron Carter, one of the most recorded session bassists of all time. Yeah, and it's bass lines like that that really show why Tribe Called Quest needed him in the studio to lay some stuff down, because he's just the man for it. He's got that heavy, simple, but very funky and driving style. It's so good. True. You guys want to play a quick game? Ooh, we love games here. Yeah, we do now. We're all about games lately. So... Charles Ireland is a notable jazz organist, although he's playing mostly the ARP synthesizer and electric keyboard on here. So I'm wondering, how many jazz organists can you guys name? We, who was the guy we did on the pod previously? She, uh, Shirley Scott. Are you thinking Johnny Hammond? Oh, Johnny Hammond. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, that's one point for Alec, one point for Peter. <laughs> Am I going to be able to keep track through the whole game? Probably not. Jimmy Smith? Ooh, it's tied. One's all across. <laughs> and as far as... Medeski, Martin, and Wood count, they do organ. Right? Yeah, which one of them's the organist, though? Uh, no, I know this. <laughs> Wood is the bass player. Uh, so it's either Medeski or Martin. I think it's Medeski, right? Yeah, John Medeski. Yeah. Ooh, Jeremy. You're in the lead Boom, now. Two. <laughs> Does uh, Booker T. Jones count? George Duke. 
Ooh, okay. What would you say, George Booker T? Sure, why not? It's all tied at twos again. Keep going. What, what did Alex say? George Duke. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. Now was he an organist or just a keyboardist though? I, I think he played a bit of everything, but yeah, why not? We'll go with that. It counts as the official judge. It counts. Rayman Zarek counts from the Doors. From the Doors, that's not jazz. Let's get out of it's here. It's jazzy at times. <laughs> no, it's not. Get out of here. <laughs> the Doors are a jazz band. No. I'm pretty sure all of them were trained as jazz musicians. Yeah. Listen, I'm Zarek's. the judge, and I don't need reasons for my ruling, so no. <laughs> You're counting his, uh, the guy dabbled in some organ, and oh my god. Well, anyway. Uh, well, he's more I of a quit. jazz player, at least. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're all winners. Congratulations. It's tied all the way across. Wow. Everybody gets participation trophies. <laughs> Fine by me. All right, cool. <laughs> so, Sean, what was your, uh, what ultimately, was this to prove that there are, it's hard to name jazz organists? There aren't that many? Um, I wasn't really trying to prove anything. I just kind of wondered how many you guys could name. And you know you oh, went with some interesting picks too because Monk Higgins. I, ooh, Monk Higgins, that's a good one. Oh yeah. crap! <laughs> when I decided I wanted to do the game, I just like quickly wrote down everything I could think of without looking it up. And you guys didn't name very many of them. You named a bunch that I didn't put down. Jimmy McGriff, brother Jack McDuff. You guys said Jimmy Smith. Uh, there's Lonnie Smith and Lonnie Liston Smith. Mm. Oh yeah, both of them. Are those two different people? They are. Yes. Yeah, Doctor Lonnie Smith. Is a different person from Lonnie Liston Smith. They are obviously often confused, though, because they are both jazz organists. <laughs> yeah, that's like the multiple David Briggs that are out there. Yep. So, regular question: How much do you guys know about Charles Ireland? Have you heard of this artist before? I never prepping for this episode. I had never heard of this guy before. Yeah, never heard of him either. So this is Alex selection alec you want to tell us about how you got familiar with charles Ireland, how you picked up this record yeah so first time digging rec at a record store with uh, a smartphone because i was like one of the last adopters to get one and you know you're just like you know i'm gonna look up the like a song just to see what the hell's on there and i was like you know i have to risk something so i see this album i'm looking at the cover i'm like what the hell this guy has big ass head and it's called like odyssey it just looks epic as hell flip the back i'm looking at the track names everything space related i'm sold so take it home and i just fell in love with every song pretty much every song there's like a couple like one at the end that's a little mm, but i love the ride of it i fell in love with the keyboard playing which was what his strength is like i love the weird percussiveness i love the um inflections that he has it's like he has a very signature playing style but he ways finds ways to adapt it in each song where it isn't like overbearing so like i really took to it are you a fan of saxophone players jazz sax guys yeah kind of i think keyboard the most just because that's the thing i can half-assedly play when i'm making music at home like i I don't just go pick up a sax and blow some notes and piss off some neighbors that's uh, that's what sean does (laughs) (laughs) occasionally but yeah i think i just uh, tend to go more towards key players just because that's how i input a lot of things for music so that makes sense i was just curious because at times when i was listening i thought he kind of played like it sounded a little saxophone like in the way he would do his melodies 
and then I read up on him, and lo and behold, he played saxophone. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I feel like there's a ton of horn players too that started with piano and then moved over to playing a wind instrument. So it's interesting that he did the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like you train one way, you apply different things to other practices. So it's two different schools of thought that he's coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it kind of gives you this creative approach to songwriting, which gives him a little bit of a, a leg up on the competition, which I guess the one thing I do want to say about organ jazz, even though this is not really a organ jazz record, is it, it was a genre that was much more popular than people really realize nowadays there was like a few year period there in the mid 60s to like the very early 70s where some of the organists were like the highest grossing jazz artist of the day and that was the kind of thing like if you were maybe a mild jazz fan like you like jazz but you didn't really want the heady weird stuff you were probably an organ jazz fan you know if you like to if you like to party at least <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely got a party vibe to it. I mean, this, for sure, this is like an intergalactic space party, but still, uh, yeah, it's a kind of party. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say though, for his more organ-centered records before this, for me, organ is an instrument that I I love, but it can be so cheesy, and he has such a great touch on it, and makes it sound interesting and cool. He also has a great touch on the ARP synthesizer, which he's doing a lot more of on this record. Yeah, I I did read one interview with him and he said something specifically about his touch that I thought was cool. He said he he plays the keyboard like a typewriter. He's very like staccato. He like just stabs the notes and then he's off it. Unlike if you listen to much organ jazz, they like really hold those notes out and kind of let them like breathe and he doesn't play that way is very stabby percussive kind of thing mm. and uh yeah i liked envisioning it like he's typing on a typewriter yeah <laughs> you know i almost yeah with with organ i almost think of that that sense of like it being used in classical music like bach these long held out chords and stuff and yeah his it's nothing like that you said it's very fluttery playing i, I like a lot of the runs that he does yeah did you guys happen to catch what his official nickname was? Uh, the ear. <laughs> Close. No, he was known as the mighty burner. Oh, I, pretty sick nickname. I, as far as those go, I, I saw that somewhere. And I didn't realize that was his nickname. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what they call you in Philly, Sean? Yeah, that's exactly what they call me. <laughs> Well, before we play one more song, I'm just, I wanted to say that for me, Charles Ireland is a guy I've been into for a while and actually someone I've been planning to do on the podcast for a couple of years. I've ordered a handful of his different records and picked them up in dollar bins and was just kind of struggling to pick one because he's got so many good records. And I was focusing a lot more on his more soul jazz prestige records kind of stuff from the early seventies. And, but I also have been talking to Alec for a while now about coming on the podcast and he's been thinking long and hard about which record he wanted to do. And he came to me with this Charles Ireland, which I owned like six other records by, but I didn't have this one yet. I was like, all right, well, someone made the choice for me. Let's go. And 
this record is awesome. I just picked up my own copy like a week ago and I'm so into it. It's, it's got all the elements from his previous jazz stuff with this cool cosmic synthesizer sound to it and heavy bass lines. Excellent playing the list of players on here. Crazy. Of course. I'm sure we'll get to that. We will get to it, (laughs) but I'm hyped on this record. Brilliant player, great career, and just doesn't get talked about enough. Like we'll, we'll get into that more as we go, but give him his, his proper, give him his flowers. That's what we're here to do. That's what we do. Okay. Next track. We're going to hear from my heart to yours. Looking at side B track one. we've had this happen with a couple other records that we've featured on the podcast that I went in unfamiliar with where listening to it for the first time several tracks deep I thought it was going to be a completely instrumental album and then suddenly vocals appear and I think this is the first song on the album that features vocals of course it's kind of almost like a backing vocal chorus in this case uh, but that caught me by surprise when I when I was listening to this and oh no, I think there there's I think there is another song before this that has some some singing on it. But reg- Son of the Gods. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Regardless, yeah, you know, after that that first track, the Intergalactic Love Song, I did not expect this to be uh <laughs> you know, it's one of those deals where some of it's far out instrumental stuff and some of it's almost like pop songs. Yeah, I mean, like Alex said earlier, it's a ride. It's not just one sound all the way through. The whole album is like a really fun trip. There's a good variety of stuff that still fits together in a whole album context. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing with with that track there, From My Heart to Yours, the lead guitar work played by Jack Turner. It's another case where the whatever effect 
was on that guitar. I don't know if it's like an envelope or a filter, but it almost made it sound slightly out of tune to me or it was disorienting. Yeah, it was kind of like nasally in tone or something. Yeah, and not necessarily a bad thing. It just it makes it kind of stand out and sound unique and interesting. Yeah, it was an interesting effect for sure. It's like similar to other guitar effects that you kind of normally hear, but like a, a different variation on it. And uh, Jack Turner is a, a guy that didn't really play with a ton of other people. He was a regular guitarist for Charles Erland, though. He's on a bunch of his records. So, yeah, and he's the only person on this album to write a song aside from Charles. Charles wrote every song except Fire, which is the next one we'll be playing that Jack Turner wrote. Yeah, I saw somewhere that uh, apparently Jack Turner wrote that. Well, you know what? We'll get to that when we get there. <laughs> we, okay, we can just, <laughs> it's foreshadowing. Just yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, there we go. So this that's another side of this record, a, a, a different sound from the first track we featured. Yeah, a little bit of a disco influence going on, leaning into that jazz R&B crossover in the mid-70s, something we've talked about many times on the show now something that we've all grown to love. Yeah. Jeremy jazz funk. Yeah. Jeremy's smooth jazz. Yeah. I think Jeremy's come around to it more and more with time. That's right. He was a, a hater early on in the show. And now he's now finally I, embraced true adulthood and learned to appreciate jazz funk. I have mixed feelings still. <laughs> I, well, I shouldn't get into this now. Yeah. I'll get into it now. I didn't like fire deal with it. Ooh, you didn't like it because it's spelled with a PH? Oh, no, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) The spelling choice was on point. Yeah, I just didn't like the lyrics. I thought they were dumb and made me like kind of, it took me out of the song. Mm. Casting a... What part of of the lyrics? Give me the the part that really bothered you. (laughs) The fact that it's just like a cookie cutter, lovey-dovey song. The other songs with lyrics... I enjoyed because, like in that one, they kind of sit in the background. They're kind of anthemic the one, chanting. The one we just listened to. Yeah. And I think there's only like one other song with lyrics other than Fire that they're kind of trippy, a little spacey, and that I can deal with. But yeah, Fire had these like generic lovey-dovey lyrics that I was like, ugh. Well... I'll talk, we'll talk about that when we come around to that again, because I'll tell you what it's about. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But in the meantime, Sean, I'm guessing you found some information on Charles Earland. Yeah, I'm going to tell you about it right now. Charles Earland was born in Philadelphia on May 24th, 1941. As we've mentioned several times now, his first instrument was the saxophone. He learned to play his father's alto sax, and then when he went to high school, he switched to the baritone. He played in a high school band with a couple fairly notable musicians, Pat Martino and Lou Tobacken, who went on to have prolific session careers as Philly jazz and session players, and then also a guy named Frankie Avalon, who kind of forgotten at this point but back in the day he was a big like teen idol pop singer oh yeah after high school charles went on to study music at temple university here in philly and played for the temple university jazz band and i'm assuming got noticed through that association because as soon as college was done he got hired to play tenor saxophone with the great jimmy mcgriff 
one of the notable jazz organ players. I uh, worked with him for three years. And while he's out there gigging with Jimmy McGriff playing the tenor saxophone, he taught himself how to play the organ just at intermissions at Jimmy McGriff concerts. You just sit down and learn how to play. <laughs> Got to do it when you can do it. Yeah, <laughs> whatever works. I'm assuming he had like, you know, touched a piano before that. It's not like he's just going in blind, like, oh, what's this do? But still, <laughs> pretty cool. So after he left Jimmy McGriff's band after three years, he permanently switched to the keyboards, the specifically the Hammond B3 organ at the time. And this is when he earned the nickname, the Mighty Burner. Because from what I understand, burner is typically a, um, like a, term used to refer to organ players at the time, like a compliment, you know, guys burning after leaving Jimmy McGriff's band. He joined Lou Donaldson's band. Lou was a soul jazz saxophone player who recorded some very notable records for blue note played with Lou for about two years and then was signed as a band leader to prestige records and his first albums for solo album as a band leader is a record called black talk that came out in 1970. Now, the interesting thing about Charles Ireland is that record specifically, Black Talk, is considered to be a canon jazz record. It's on greatest jazz record lists, but it's a relatively straightforward organ jazz, soul jazz record, you know? And it's kind of weird that like the rest of his career just doesn't get talked about. Like he's kind of a footnote in the soul jazz world when he gets talked about or is in reference to other people, but he doesn't get his whole catalog celebrated. Like I feel like he really deserves. So part of the point of talking about this later record, seven, no, six years after his celebrated album. How many albums in is that? I saw he was fairly prolific. For uh, how many albums in his Odyssey? Yeah. That would be his 11th record. He recorded 10 albums for Prestige as a band leader, including a couple live albums, I think. One of which is a 1971 live album called Living Black that featured a young, unheard of, up-and-coming Philly sax player, Grover Washington Jr. Oh, wow. Not previously featured on the podcast, which... It's kind of shocking to me that it's a crime. We've it's gone a crime. Yeah, we're saving that one. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> uh, another record on Prestige during that ten album run is a, a record called Charles the Third that came out in 1973, which is notable for featuring the last recorded material from trumpeter Lee Morgan before Lee was tragically murdered by his wife in 1972. Well, geez, I didn't know that's how Lee Morgan died. Yeah, there's a whole documentary about it. It's a really interesting story. So after his 10 album run at Prestige, he moved to the Mercury label, and his first album is this one, album number 11, Odyssey, in 1976. So as we said, he's he's playing a little bit of organ on here, and he had been moving more and more into experimental territory and moving into more of a jazz-funk sound but also experimenting more with free jazz related stuff similar to uh, you guys remember how like Norman Connors had those free jazz elements, even while he yeah. was doing all the smooth R and B stuff. I think there's a lot of comparisons between Charles Ireland and Norman Connors in their career trajectories. Yeah. Going back to that was one of the things that I thought of when listening to this was our Norman Connors 
episode and listening to that album, which was uh, "You Are My Starship." Was that the album? Yeah, yeah, that's the. Yeah. It just yeah that that vibe of like not really knowing what it's going to be going in from track to track, kind of being surprised by the left turn and the right turn, just <laughs> going every which direction, through, which makes it a journey. It keeps it interesting. Yeah, agreed. There, there's some similar turns with this. And also when we get into the lineup after the next song, you'll see how much of a free jazz influence is really happening here too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. One song being like a radio ready song, a pop song. And then the next thing being just far out. Yeah. There's yeah. <laughs> with just some like wild experimental ARP synthesizer sounds happening in the background too. Yeah. Let's well, so round out this bio. Charles Ireland continued working pretty much throughout his whole life, maintained a steady, loyal fan base, continued to have some club hits after this as he continued to explore the kind of more R&B side of jazz right up until about 1985 when his wife passed away. He retired from music for a few years and then came back. And when he came back to music, he went back to playing the B3, the Hammond B3 organ, and spent pretty much the rest of his career doing more of like a throwback soul jazz kind of sound. But he continued recording. He had albums come out on both Milestone and Muse Records, two very notable jazz labels. And then he passed away in 1999, literally like the morning after a gig. Just kept working right up until the end. It's happened a few times, and people we've talked about how they played shows like right before passing away yeah or was it tiny tim who like basically died on stage almost oh yeah alec how much of uh charles story were you familiar with prior to this pretty much none i just buy music because it's good like i really don't get deep deep into it unless i find myself buying more and more of someone's like work i don't know i, I just yeah I really didn't know too much outside. He was born in Philly. <laughs> Good enough. The full picture now. And do you have other records by Charles at this point? Uh, yeah, I have like everything off as a, off of Mercury, actually. Nice. <laughs> Just because it's such a unique sound off of that label and a couple other releases like Mama Roots and a few others. Right on. It's it's really hard to go wrong. Honestly, I've never heard a bad Charles Ireland record. That are there. There's some that are really great, and some that maybe have a few duds on them. But very consistent artists across the board. Yeah. Okay, I, it's time to hear a song. One that Jeremy doesn't like. He does like the spelling of it though. Fire. <laughs> Fire. I think it's important since you know uh, Jeremy's kind of planted that seed of the lyrics being generic and lovey-dovey i found a comment i just happened to go to i went to youtube so it's uh youtube fact check here you know <laughs> uh, yeah. we got a youtube fact <laughs> but that's to be a new segment yeah, yeah. <laughs> the youtube fact. youtube facts with peter cook <laughs> a, a user commented on the upload of this song fire by charles Ireland. the user said that this song was written by a gentleman named Jack Turner, who sang lead and played lead guitar on this tune. Back in the day, 1976-1977, I used to date Charles Ireland's daughter. According to her, Jack Turner wrote this song for his daughter. Oh. Well, that's kind of cute. He wrote a simple love song for his kid. Jeremy, you monster. How dare you dislike that song? <laughs> I'm going to listen to it with that in mind. And yeah. 
I'm going in with the expectation that I'm going to find it creepy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for planning that in our listeners' minds. Too. Yeah. The, you know, the one uh, internet comment that I read in regards to this song is that somebody out there thought that this was just a obvious earth, wind and fire ripoff. And I fail to see what the problem with that is <laughs> personally. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I got some earth, wind and fire vibes, a few points on this record and this was one of them, but I don't see the issue with it. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it coming. All right. Here is fire. We're looking at side B track three. cheesy love songs so screw you <laughs> and on the earth wind and fire reference i'm not an earth wind and fire fan i think they're a little too clean like studio clean for me so like anything with a little rougher edge that seemed like humans played it i'm down for so that that's why fire really hits for me <laughs> so you find earth wind and fire too good at their instruments be believable no <laughs> too sterile in the recordings Ooh. okay in the recordings yeah i mean i always thought the phoenix horns their horn section in earth wind and fire sounded like robotic almost and you know i yeah. so i could see someone feeling that way about the recordings how about live earth wind and fire we're getting off track here but <laughs> <laughs> I, we did we did, we have a previous episode where we like sean heavily d- defended the point his point that they're the greatest band of all time so <laughs> i'm just curious uh how you feel about them as a live band if you've checked that out i i think i've remember seeing some like later footage of them playing I'm like they're a band they could play i'm not i can't take that away from them <laughs> it's just recorded wise it's like lose a little life because a little sterile i like a little funkier a little grittier in the studio something seems like they didn't have enough money to do fifty thousand takes on tape you know Mm -hmm. 
Well, some of that grit and human element that you mentioned on this record might have something to do with the players. You guys want to hear the full lineup and their associations outside of this band? I do, and, and I can't believe I'm opening up the floor to this, but I, I would like to hear Jeremy's take on fire after having a little context for it. I, <laughs> I will say I disliked it a little less knowing the context and actually found it a little <laughs> less creepy too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's like aspects that the first time around, if you don't understand that feel a little like weird. Yeah. A little weird, but now it makes sense. So yeah, I'll give you that back, but <laughs> it's still a little generic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But you know, it's a it's a, a dance it's a danceable love song in 1976. That's just kind of that's that's how they are. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe you just don't like that kind of music too much. I don't. That's fine. <laughs> I don't want to always listen to that wordy bullshit that you like, so is there any love in your heart? Me no. <laughs> <laughs> Hard no. <laughs> Uh, we t- took us this many episodes, but we have finally officially established that. <laughs> yeah. The fans have been wondering this whole time, is there any love in Jeremy's heart? <laughs> uh, I think if Maggie and Terry and Suzzy are involved, then the love grows. Aww. The, the roaches do that to Jeremy. Yeah, it's only one band that's <laughs> melted that ice-cold heart. <laughs> they are the the Whoville to my Grinch heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A perfect segue back to the players. <laughs> All right. So the lineup on this record, we got Ron Carter on the bass. <laughs> I've heard of him. And then uh, also on, on bass, we got a guy named Billy Colburn. Yeah. Not to be confused with Billy Cobham, even I, though their names look very similar. Yeah. I'm reading what, a whole bunch of names on Discogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, I, I made that mistake uh, for just a second, and then I noticed it was not Cobham. Yeah, it's a guy I really couldn't find anything about. He plays on this record and one other record, and that's it. So not a very extensive career, at least according to Discogs. But on the drums, we got two pretty great players who I didn't recognize by name, but I, when I looked at their discography, recognized a lot of that. You got Abe Speller on drums who played with Sonny Chirac. And you also have Howard King on drums who played in Gary Bart's Into You, as well as a lot of other records. Well, that makes sense that, like, uh, it was Abe Speller, the first player you mentioned. Yes. It makes sense that he would be uh, well-versed in playing some far-out stuff if he if he played with Sonny. Exactly. And, it, and it, it keeps going from there, too. Moving on to percussion, you have Lawrence Killian, who played with Pharaoh Sanders and Lonnie Liston-Smith. And then also on percussion, you have Jose Sheo Santos, who played with Sonny Chirac. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of free jazz association going on here. So like I said, that grittiness starts to make a lot of sense when you look at where these guys are all coming from. What's what's informing these sounds. Jack Turner on guitar, who we've mentioned, he's was a longtime Charles Ireland associate who did a few other things, but not a whole lot. On a few tracks, you have the absolute legend, John Amber Crombie. Are you guys familiar with that name by chance? I, uh, yeah, but I can't place it. He's a guitar guy, right? 
Yes. Jazz yeah. guitarist did a lot of stuff for ECM was a notable session player before that and just passed away in 2017, I believe. Uh, but one thing I want to note, he is the session player on a very expensive, legendary Holy Grail record called The Stark Reality. That's the name of the band. And the record is called Discovers Hoagie Carmichael's Music Shop. So for anyone out there not familiar with that record, check it out. One of the same guitarists as this album. Also on guitar, you have a guy named Robert Lowe, who was a Detroit guy who played with Lonnie Liston-Smith and also the Lyman Woodard organization, which is a very notable Detroit jazz group with some extremely expensive records. And you have a few special guest appearances from some pretty famous players at this point. You have the great Norman Connors playing drums on one track. You have session man Randy Brecker playing electric trumpet on one track, and you also have Michael Urbaniak playing violin on one or two songs on here. Okay, well, that's pretty much the whole lineup, aside from a few other players that I won't mention, just because they're like minor players that don't have a lot of information on them. I thought it was, it said it like it was for personal reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every backup singer on this record killed my whole family. <laughs> Jesus. Well, you know what time it is, Sean. I I have a few thoughts, but I'm gonna wait for you to tell me. It's time for Sean's recommended similar albums, SRSL for short. Sean's recommended, <laughs> yeah, as it's known. <laughs> wait, why <laughs> L? S albums S A yes. <laughs> Sursa time. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, it's that time again. I have a special edition of this one. It's an extra long list. You guys ready? Yes. Ooh, Peter loves long lists. Yeah. <laughs> Buckle up. We got a list I'm coming. I'm strapped in. <laughs> okay, recommended similar albums by other artists. I have three records that also came out in 1976 that I think share some similarities and are worth checking out. First up, Grover Washington Jr., A Secret Place. If you want to go in a little more of the smooth jazz direction, that would be a great record to pick up. Another cheap one. As we've said, Grover Washington Jr., absolute legend. Got to do an episode eventually. It will happen. Second one, Aquarian Dream, a band that we mentioned, I think, a couple times on the Norman Connors episode, recommending their self-titled record, again, from 1976, Really cool jazz, funk, R&B crossover, fusion, I guess you could call it, but awesome band. Records are fairly cheap. Definitely worth picking up. Third suggestion, Caldera, their self-titled album from 1976. There's some notable hip-hop samples on there. It's a similar kind of fusion of different genres and has an Earth, Wind & Fire association as well and pretty easy to find in the dollar bin. Well, that wasn't that long of a list. Well, <laughs> we're only halfway through, bud. <laughs> oh boy. You know, Sean, I don't mean to interrupt uh, this long list. Are but I'm just curious, are there any notable samples on this album that we're listening to today? Did you find it? There's a few samples, but I wouldn't call any of them super notable. Let's see. I like Ninth Wonder sampled 
two different songs off this track, I think, but they were like for beat tapes from what I could tell. And a few other names that I kind of recognized. I mean, maybe there's like a huge hit that I just like haven't heard. And everyone's like, holy shit, you aren't name dropping this one Charles Ireland sample. But- I, th- I thought I saw in, in once again, I was the re it's worth mentioning. The reason I was listening to this on YouTube is because I couldn't find it on streaming services. And I saw a comment about Jay Dilla sampling something. Yeah, um, I saw that on there. I couldn't tell if he had made the track that sampled it or if he remixed a track that had sampled it. But there is a Jay Dilla association, but I think he just did the remix on a song. Okay, yeah, I that's kind of what it, I looked into it just a little bit and I saw something similar, but I didn't go too deep. So, yeah. I, me neither. So, well, <laughs> there's a, at least a slight J Dilla association with this record. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I wouldn't want to overlook it. Yeah. If, if you're out there, no more. Once again, hit us up at I'd buy that podcast at gmail.com. But anyway, back to the second part of your list. <laughs> part two of the list. So, Charles Ireland has such an extensive catalog. And like I said, a lot of it is cheap and pretty much all of it is good. So, I want to give a couple recommendations of other Charles Ireland records to go out there and find if you're into what you've heard and want to explore the full catalog. So aside from the one we mentioned, Black Talk, which is a great album to start with, he has a record called Intensity from 1972 that has some really great, slightly more laid back, I would say like CTI style grooves and with some just excellent fuzz guitar shredding over top of a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Great record to pick up. CTI, of course, being the uh, Creed Taylor's label with some this kind of soul jazz stuff. Jazz funk, I would say more, but I mean, the lines are so blurry in all <laughs> of these like jazz spinoff subgenres of the time. You know, most of these guys weren't even saying they were working in a specific genre. They were just trying to expand the horizons of jazz, as we've discussed before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'd always say they were playing jazz, but like playing everything contemporary and putting jazz in it. Yeah. It's like, can I add bacon to it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and as we found, it seems like a huge chunk of the pop and R&B records happening at this day were all jazz guys as the studio musicians anyway. So again, the the lines of what is jazz and what is soul are just just forever blurred, especially once you get into the mid-70s. Thank you, 70s. You made music more interesting. (laughs) Making everything blurry. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, second recommendation, Charles Ireland has a record called Leaving This Planet in 1974, which is a kind of a good marker of him really shifting from the more friendly, danceable soul jazz into just some more experimental territory and some more hard-hitting grooves. He's got both Freddie Hubbard and Joe Henderson on that record. It Ooh. smokes. It's so good. Those are some top-notch saxophonists correct yes and the three of them just kind of sound like they're all pushing each other like the record is just it goes hard and last suggestion the album that came out right after this one or maybe two records after this one but an album called perceptions in 1978 that's leaning more into the disco jazz type vein and it's still really good so if you wanted more jazz less weird stuff grab that record There's a track on it called Let the Music Play that, from what I understand, was actually kind of a minor club hit, especially in Europe. And that's all of the list. (laughs) I'll make a quick, uh, quickly amend something I said. Uh, Joe Henderson, top-notch saxophonist. Freddie Hubbard, top-notch trumpeter. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> True. Correct. Trumpeter. <laughs> well, very cool. Yeah, this is a artist that I honestly had never heard of. So this has been fun learning. Just there seems like there's a lot to explore here. Now, how commonly do you see his records? Um, they're not like everywhere. You know, you're not going to find a trial Ireland record every time you dig through a dollar bin, but they are all much cheaper than they should be. I bought this record Odyssey for like $3 and 40 cents at a Philadelphia record store. I think I bought most of his other records for two or three bucks that I've got. Yeah. They're, they're around. It's, it's definitely a medium to easy find. I would say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Alec, uh, do you have anything that you want to plug? I mean, we've mentioned Vinyl Tap. If people are interested, I know they can go over to Instagram and find at Vinyl Tap 215. Do you have anything you'd like to plug beyond that? Well, uh, yeah. Every Wednesday, I stream on Twitch under Particle Ray Music. Uh, yeah, Particle Ray Music from 8 to 10. And I play literally just any record in my collection and trying to make a cohesive set out of randomness so uh i'm also currently playing at the trestle and i yeah it's a new residency under my belt so having fun playing disco and hopefully getting the courage to play some solitudes so oh, yeah the trestle inn is a happening spot i was fortunate enough to get to check out sean spinning there my wife and i when we were in philadelphia few months back got to go see sean spinning at the trestle inn and the go-go dancers and it's a great vibe that's right so if you're in philadelphia look for particle ray and or dj hard bargain at the trestle inn we're there all the time now <laughs> all the time non-stop all the time <laughs> they're there right Two to now three times a yeah, month <laughs> are you guys doing a set right now <laughs> don't lie to me yeah we are just stoned as fuck DJing at the trestle while <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> Everything is true. Cool, cool, cool. Wonderful. Well, yeah, thanks for joining us, Alec. And yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Hope to have you back. All right. Well, Sean, what are we going out on? We are going out on Journey of the Soul, side B, track four, the closing track on the album. And this one is straight instrumental. Yes straight instrumental and this one is the track that features randy brecker on the electric trumpet awesome thank you so much for listening to yet another installment of i'd buy that for a dollar this is peter cook goodbye this is jeremy ruggles goodbye and i'm sean hartman goodbye um this, this is alec goodbye <laughs> 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 <laughs>